morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kyle, the lead pastor here at Generations Church. Uh, you have stepped into just a wonderful thing, whether joining us online or here in the room. Uh, we really want to steward the story that God is uh, just creating and writing here well. Uh, so we hope to get to know you and your story. Uh, you know, just personally sit down, have a cup of coffee, get to know you a little bit. We hope that you share that with us, but also um, start to can really share with you the larger story that God is writing. In fact, earlier this week, I got to spend some time with, I'll just call it like my extended family or Generations Church's extended family, with some planters all over the Northwest at various ages and stages of their planting journey. And what was so amazing is as all of these different church planters or, or people who are starting new churches came together, just there were some real similarities that were present. There were similarities of, of risk. There were similarities of adventure. There were similarities of um, really time and then, and then trust. It was, it was very interesting sharing stories with, with all of them as, as they have entered into a new community and trying to build relationships and just the time it takes to build trust well, to, to represent Jesus well. And what was amazing is as they stepped into the unique stories of their local communities, all of these churches took different shapes and different forms, but all were centered around the same thing, that being Jesus. In fact, um, one of the churches down in Eugenia, Everyone Village, is, is a church uh, completely oriented around uh, the houseless or, or the homeless. In fact, the, the lead planter there, Gabe, he, he started a nonprofit, and they build tiny homes that are built by the homeless community for the homeless community, giving them both jobs and then a, a place to live. And, and they are earning all kinds of favor in Eugene of doing the work and, and in the midst of that, having spiritual conversations. In fact, then there, there's another church up in Tacoma that's completely bilingual. So that means is every few sentences that, that the, the preacher speaks, it's then translated not into another language, but into English. He preaches natively in Spanish. And then it's translated to the second and third generation Hispanics in the room and, and Latinos and, and even for the, the English speakers who have oriented towards their church community. And it's been a beautiful and powerful thing that in the midst of all these churches, the common refrain is we want Jesus to be lifted up. We want people to know and trust and follow Jesus and in fact be reminded, as we say around here, that the goodness of God, that Jesus, his name and his way, will be lifted up and will be shared for generations to come. And that's our vision and that's what we want to steward here well. And in fact, a lot of this benefits package series that we're in, so you may have heard that, you may be joining us for the first time in the midst of this. Um, don't worry, I'll, I'll give you a quick previously on. Um, so for those of you who maybe have missed a few weeks, this will be helpful for some of those new, it'll hopefully be helpful for, for those of you who have been with us the whole time. You know, sorry, you can't skip forward 30 seconds. You can't skip the recap. So the recap is that there is this pastor preacher who is writing to a group of discouraged Christians that life hasn't quite gone how they anticipated. As they look at the story that's unfolded in their life, 
they have some concerns. They feel a little bit of discouragement. Now, these individuals have trusted and followed Jesus. And they wonder, should they consider following Jesus, continue to follow Jesus, or should they go back to an old pattern or way of living? So what you should, what's embedded in there is a distinct difference. That as you follow Jesus, there should be change in your life. As you follow Jesus, you should be, know that you are loved child of God, that you are made new, and that should start to express itself in new behavior, uh, new habits, new, new affections internally. And, and so that, that brings about a level of change, but some things just haven't quite gone their way. And in fact, as they are changing, the world around them seems increasingly hostile to them. And it's not a fun thing. And especially in our day and age, we like things instantly, right? It is, it is, I, I walk into a room, I flip on the light. The light should work. It's almost out of habit. And it's disorienting when things that are supposed to be automatic aren't. Now, following Jesus is not one of those things that you can microwave. In fact, it's like a good crock pot meal. It takes some time. Some of your stomachs are already rumbling. I promise Super Bowl potluck will be here a little bit later. But following Jesus takes some time. And so what the author has done to this point is try to prove and say that Jesus is better than the old way of living. And the old way of living that they were going back to is this Jewish Old Testament way of living. And he's almost had this aside. He's like, hey, you need to know that pursuing maturity is even worth it. And so in this section, chapter 7, we're coming back to the main point that he even started clear back in chapter 4. If you're orienting kind of in the Bible where we're finding ourselves in Hebrews. Back to this character, this individual called Melchizedek. And it's interesting that Melchizedek is mentioned eight times in Hebrews, but only twice in the Old Testament. And so the reason that he's going to bring up this character is because these individuals were interested in going back to this Jewish way of living. And in fact, they wanted a tactile, tangible high priest. They had been told that Jesus, the Son of God, was going to be their high priest. And again, we'll get into this here in a moment, why, why this idea of priesthood seems so dissimilar for our everyday life. But they had this serious, significant intellectual objection to that idea that Jesus could be the high priest. This is because Jesus did not come from the tribe, the priestly tribe of Levi, or the priestly family in that tribe, the family of Aaron. So they're like, hey, you're, you're claiming, or this reality... That Jesus is high priest, yet Jesus did not come from this family lineage. So family is important. This genealogy is important. So he's trying to remove these intellectual problems that the Jewish Christians had with the good news that Jesus is both priest and king. And in fact, these intellectual hangups kept them from continuing on to maturity in Jesus. And so he wants to make this powerful statement about these two roles that I just mentioned, 
priest and king. And they don't get a lot of exposure in our everyday life. We usually kind of get these in kind of theory, like what a priest is or, or what a king is. So when a text like this, just to be really honest, weaves in an Old Testament story, priest and king, we're like, what do we do with this? Like, I've got to pay my electric bill, like I'm worried about kids, like I'm thinking about my job, work email, like, like I just, how, how things are, like is my business going to be standing tomorrow? Like, well, you know, like things like that. And so then when you have an Old Testament story, a priest and king, we kind of wonder like, okay, Kyle, like are we going to get a lesson on Hebrew today? Like, like, what's, like what is the relevance here? And we begin to ask the question, and at least I do, I hope when you read the Bible, that you're like, why is this important? In fact, I, I would ask this, like, why is this priest, king, Old Testament story even worth discussing? Kyle, why, why should we waste our time or not waste our time listening to you? So like, I got to prove my own merit on some way here. Like, I know I'm a love child of God, but I also want to be sensitive with your time. And so when we think about gathering here, priest, king, Old Testament story, like Melchizedek, why is this even worth discussing? Well, the author spends time linking Jesus to this priest king. And I think we need to go back and understand the story a little bit. So it goes back to this, this blessing of promise, or promise blessing of God to Abraham, saying, hey, I want to represent myself to humanity. In fact, I'm going to choose a family to do that. And so God calls Abram out of the wilderness and basically says, follow me. And through you, I'm going to bless all kinds of people. Through your family, you're going to represent me to all kinds of people. And as I bless you, you will then bless others, which means God's going to choose to, to provide financially for in an ancient world when there was all kinds of rituals and rites and, and, and there was this fear of, if I didn't pray to the right God, my crops won't grow. Yep. All this reality that, that God's going to provide for this man and his family and represent God's will and God's way to the rest of the world. And so he, Abram has moved. He's in this land that God has promised. And surrounding him are all these like tribal kings. And so think less like Game of Thrones, the Lannisters, and like more and less like King Arthur, like kingship, and more like TV show like the Vikings, or like, um, I guess you could say even Game of Thrones, like the, the Starks. So it's like, it's more of this tribal, like you've got high walls, but, it, but it's wood, ancient, it's, it's less people, like less high stone walls, and these immaculate kingdoms, and more like smaller settlements where the king would make judgments. And what happened is you have all these groups or tribes with, with self-appointed kings or what they would call as like spiritual kings as God's given me this right or this God's given me this right. They're, they're going to war. And in the midst of this war, Abraham or Abraham's nephew Lot gets captured. And Abram, like, he, he, he rallies all of these, these men, about 300 of them, so he's way outnumbered, and he goes and he gets his nephew back. And after this war of getting his nephew back, he's met by two kings. One is the priest king of Salem called Melchizedek, who actually isn't involved in this battle, and then another king of Sodom who was. And what's interesting as we meet this priest king Melchizedek 
It's the first time in all of Scripture, and really one of the only times, where there's a royal priest. This individual is both king and priest. These are two roles that are linked in this individual. Now it's interesting because implicit within the scripture, back at creation, Adam and Eve's role as royal priests are implied. But Melchizedek is clearly called a royal priest. And not from the line of Seth, Noah, or Shem, or some other tribe. Melchizedek is a Canaanite who somehow knows the most high God. And he comes to Abraham with a feast and a blessing. And Abraham responds by giving him a tenth of all he has. This priest king blesses Abraham. And Abraham responds. And this other king, as a side in the story that's not necessarily mentioned in Hebrews, says, hey, hey, let's come to some sort of arrangement real quick. Uh, You take all the possessions, Abraham. You conquered. You won this war. You take all the possessions, and, and I'll take the people as a result from battle. And Abraham turns it all down. And he says, I'm not interested in the possessions or in the people. Because he says, I'm going to walk by faith, and I trust God to fulfill my promise. In that moment, Abraham does not short circuit God's promise. See, God has promised to fulfill and to provide for Abraham and his family. And God said he would do it through a descendant, not through a conquering battle. And so Abraham turns this down. And so in Genesis, this story of this priest king is contrasted with this other king. This Melchizedek, this priest king tandem makes him special. And we kind of wonder, so priest, king, Kyle, you keep talking about this, like, like, what, like why? What, like, what is the importance of this? In most cases, these roles or these responsibilities is joined in Melchizedek, but they, they weren't in any other case. See, a priest, just especially a royal priest, is a human gateway to the divine. See, when humans are in their ideal role, They have moments in which they display aspects of God's wisdom, power, and even glory. But history shows us that we don't steward this well. When we combine this mediator role along with power, we fail miserably. In fact, history shows that the combining of religious and civic authority almost always leaves humanity worse, except in one case. So God does not allow even the kings of Israel to be priests and the priests to be kings. And so this Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God, was a unique exception. See, the king is the strength of the people. The priest represented the weakness of the people. The king was representative of, of law and justice and organization and the best of moving humanity or civilization forward in the way that we might think of moving humanity forward. But the priest was always needed because humanity repeatedly fails. We don't live up to the best version of ourselves. 
And we, and we need someone to not just simply pat us on the back and say it'll be okay, but provide tactile way for the God of the unit to represent God to us. And the reason the priest-king was never tied together is because even good kings would have blood on their hands. And they could not be simultaneously just and mediator. Someone could not intercede for humanity in the Holy of Holies with no blood on their hands to cleanse the blood on the people's hands. So the king wields the sword of law against transgressors. The priests offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. And again, why, why is this so difficult? You're like, God, I still don't get it. It's because our country, our nation, was literally founded not to be governed by kings and priests. We literally set up a country that said we will not be governed or ruled by kings nor priests. We, we, we have a representative democracy. We established the separation of church and state, meaning that there's going to be no national religion mediated by government officials. And while we live in the West and set up a system of governance that does a lot of good and can equally do harm, that doesn't mean that we don't look for kings and we don't look for priests in our everyday life. See, we constantly look for representatives outside of ourselves who can extend the arm of the law, who can represent us in flourishing, who has more power than we might do and say, work on our behalf. Rule, in many cases, by might, for might makes right. And our kings act as agents of power within a society with who we align ourselves to. Whoever does what we want, the way we want, in a position of power can oftentimes become our king, who we pledge our allegiance to. And then priests, a little more nebulous, but these are individuals who represent God to us. For lack of a better example, maybe pop stars or athletes or actors or writers who, who take our weaknesses our fragility, and instead of providing absolution for our weaknesses, they flaunt it, they share it, they glorify it. They want us to take pride in it. So instead of coming to these mediators and saying, we, we need to offer a level of contrition, and repentance, and sorrow, and really grieve for our brokenness, it's flaunted. We sing songs from the radio that we go, yeah, this frail, feeble, what I think is right and what I think is wrong is now glorified, and we chant and we refrain. And these priests offer weaknesses up as identities, as gods who we give ourselves over to. So themselves, instead of offering absolution, say what we need is relative acceptance. So in our weaknesses, we think we have freedom. But the problem isn't... The problem is less out there and people need to accept us just as we are. And more in here that we need to be made new. 
And as we are made new, as we are accepted and loved and cherished by God, then the fullest expression of ourselves rightfully comes out. So many times we weaponize our weaknesses and our perceived identities on the world around us. And in doing so, we wreak havoc because we don't know how to be human. We don't know how to be wield might rightly to receive love well. And so oftentimes we think the problem is out there in which a society refuses to accept me just the way I am, where we have our base desires, no restrictions, and these priests represent us and say, no, you be you. And the problem is them because they don't accept you. And the reality is it's not you be you, it's you be made new. Exactly where you are. So we still have priests, and they don't offer us an absolution because the path to absolution is not you must accept my brokenness. The path to absolution is I'm broken, so I repent. I need mercy. I need something to change my heart so that I can extend forgiveness when I don't feel like I'm able to. That I need change when I don't always feel like I need to change. And the priest is supposed to offer that. And we've just chosen the wrong priests. And so Melchizedek, who is a great priest, a great priest king, points to one who is better. The benefit is that we have one who is our strong representative with a sword that comes from his mouth. And he's the most tender and sympathetic of priests. And the author wants us to know that that person is Jesus. And this Melchizedek, representing a type of Christ, pointing us forward to Jesus rightly. His name is called the King of Righteousness, as it says, or then he was called the King of Peace. And these concepts of righteousness and peace are appropriate for one who kind of represents the future Messiah, the one who will bring rescue and redemption, the one who will make us new the one who would make righteousness and peace possible for the people of God. It's interesting because we always think peace precedes righteousness. But here in this text, we see that righteousness comes before peace. Righteousness is only true path to peace. People look for peace in escape, in evasion, in bullying, or compromise. But we will only find it and righteousness, meaning in total alignment with God. Without righteousness, we have no chance at peace with God, nor peace with others. Because in attempt to get peace with others, if we define right and wrong in our own minds, we ultimately, because of our limited perspective and ability, will almost always wreak more havoc than good. And so, Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God, including character, conscience, conduct, and command, our word. Peace is the status of being totally whole or well. When we are made right or seen as right or found in Jesus and made right, we then can express peace rightly. Just how we look for faulty kings and priests, we personally get out of alignment with what righteousness and what true peace looks like. Alignment 
is such a car term. I don't, like, I, it's the only way I, th- I, I think of it. I mean, unless you want to say, like, the planets aligned or maybe something like that. But I think of it in terms of a car. It's the angling of the tires to maximize the contact with the road. So if you take your car in to get worked on, like, chances are you're going to get asked of, like, hey, when's the last time you had an alignment? You need to, to get aligned here. What's interesting is I guess you could think of it in terms of chiropractor as well. Right, so that you can function well, and that's right the point. If you neglect alignment, you will cease to function properly. If you neglect an alignment, let's say in the example of a car, you're probably going to have steering problems where your wheels become out of a line. They're not facing in the directions necessary for optimal handling. And this can be a dangerous issue for if you're trying to drive in a a cramped area, if you're in dangerous conditions like inclement weather. Doesn't that help us in life as well? If we are not in alignment, it can lead to directional problem. We think we're heading in the right direction and we're off course. It can lead to uneven wear. You got to take a good look on the tread of your tires. In a properly aligned vehicle, the tires will have even wear in consistent spots. And if you don't, the faster you go or the crazier you go, if you don't take care of it, then the tire can blow out. It can drag you in a way that you don't want to go. So as one website put it, it said, tire rotation can help, but good wheel alignment can save you time and money. Some of you feel weary and worn down. You feel exhausted. And the challenge is, is usually because we have uneven wear in some aspect of our life. We're allowing God to speak in some areas of life, but we don't allow him to touch others. And so we've gotten out of alignment Poor alignment can also lead to poor fuel economy. And when poor fuel economy comes to to bear, it says the harder your vehicle has to work to stay on the road and maintain a constant speed, the more fuel you're wasting and paying for. So proper wheel alignment carries over into fuel economy and overall performance. So it's not just in certain aspects of your life, but total life as well. Sometimes we just feel tired and exhausted. Like we're just spinning our wheels, we're going, 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 and we never seem to find rest. Not able to make the most of the resources, the time, the opportunities that we have. And sometimes that's simply because maybe we're out of alignment. We've not taken the time to refuel and recharge so that we can move forward. And in fact, these Christians, the ones who are receiving this letter, they're on the verge of discouragement and wanting to give up. And so sometimes when we feel like just simply giving up, giving up, or maybe we should say giving in or getting realigned, is reconnecting and reattaching to Jesus, to receiving his love and his energy and his identity for us. 
And the challenge is, is that sometimes we let all of these issues pile up all at once. And sometimes the longer we wait to address small issues, the more they can end up costing us in the long run. The challenge is, is we think that living life out of alignment without true righteousness and true peace is normal. The scandal of the good news of Jesus is to redefine normal. To G- that Jesus offers righteousness to the ungodly. That Jesus offers peace to the natural enemies of God and makes them family. To the people who feel discouraged and worn out and weary, he gives them rest. To the people who feels like that they are just heaped on with shame, that if people really knew who I was in my heart, Jesus gives cleansing. To the people who feel like they got to do more to be right with God, he says, no, I, I filled the gap. I am both the high priest and the sacrifice. You can't earn your way to me because I have paved the way for you. And so this is why the author seemingly goes on this tangent on Abraham offering this tithe in relationship to the tribe of Levi. He'll eventually bring it around, and we're actually going to get to that next week. It's because we are made righteous and have peace with God because of Christ Jesus. And we are to realign to that reality by simply responding. To respond. And when we respond, this will look like all kinds of different things. No two acts of response may be exactly similar. But responding to righteousness and responding to the peace given to us means that blessing flows freely. Some of you are stingy with grace right now. You're keeping a ledger with everything done seemingly right and wrong in your relationships. In your mind right now, You go, I can't forgive because fill in the blank. Or I can't bless someone with a word of affirmation because someone didn't give it to me. And in turn, we're playing a zero-sum game. We're keeping a ledger. We're living life with a ledger mentality. And the only ledger that truly matters is the ledger that's been marked clean and eliminated because of what Jesus has done. His death on a cross and his powerful resurrection says that I've paid it all. That you are loved. That you can have power. That you can be made new. That there is more hope. That there's life after death. And it's proved and shown us how to be made human in Christ. Now I had a few more things to say, but I'm just going to cut it here. The band's going to come forward. And I'm going to get out of here. But as the band comes forward, let me just maybe capstone this. I had four. I only got to two. I know I'm sensitive on my time. It's interesting because Melchizedek speaks a blessing over Abraham. And it says, as they take stock in their place in the relationship, just have to ask, 
If Melchizedek speaks a blessing over Abraham, what do you think Christ speaks over you? Some of you say, I think he forgives me, but he does so begrudgingly. What if we chose to believe that his righteousness is so comprehensive, that his rule is so good, that his mediator responsibility is so just and so clean and so pure that he offers us not just absolution, but blessing. That it doesn't simply just take away the sin, the guilt, and the shame and says, okay, I'll leave you to fend for yourselves. But he replaces that with blessing. See, all of these aspects can be tied to Jesus that we can learn from Melchizedek. Mel is a foreshadow of a little bit like our king. His rule is eternal. He's both priest and king. He's the bringer of peace and righteousness, and he initiates how we might respond. So as we close our time and sing one more song, I know our time of responding has passed, but it really hasn't. What would it look like for you to simply respond? to maybe receive the blessing that Christ has for you. To be made new. To say yes to Jesus. What are you withholding from Jesus today? It's time to realign and stop withholding by simply releasing and responding. Believing that Jesus is alive and will provide everything you need as our priest, and as our king. Respond to that reality today.